Welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. On today's show, our guest is Julian Mihov. He is the director for business development for Southeast Europe for PwC. I met Julian at a conference put on in Zurich by a friend of ours called Samuel Haas, who's a wealth manager. And he put on this event to try to bring together some lawyers, wealth managers and finance people. And at that event, Julian was given a fantastic presentation on the economic, political and governance developments that have taken place in sport within Southeast Europe. Now, I think it's particularly relevant for those of us working in international sports law. I think there's some very interesting insights, some legacy issues that, that Julian describes. And it's super important, as always, if you're a sports lawyer, to understand the economic and political environment in which sports are operating within. I hope you get out as much of this interview as I did. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can follow us on at Sport or me at SPCOTT on Twitter. That's SPCOT on Twitter, on Facebook or on LinkedIn. As always, thank you for your support. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoy it, please share it, tell people about it. I hope you enjoy the show. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out. I know you're over well, thank here. Thank you for, for inviting for, me for some doing some really cool stuff that is, is outside of this podcast, but uh, just in terms of uh, development of business in, in Eastern Europe generally. Um, I have the absolute pleasure of listening to you give a presentation, which I, I said to you earlier, and I mean it. I, I refer to it a lot now when I'm talking about development of sports law, and the background behind that is the, the development of sports business and sports business industry and the sports markets, particularly with Eastern Europe and the, and, uh, the former communist blocs and the, or the USSR countries. Um, it was something that I wasn't, hadn't given much thought to previously, something I was aware of in my sports science days, but hadn't given it, uh, any, any sort of background to. And it's something that's over the last, I think it was a year ago or so, we were at the... Almost uh, a year ago. Yeah, in, yeah in back Zurich. in Zurich. Yeah, yeah and uh, I wondered, and I thought it would be beneficial to our listeners and to the readers of Laurian Sport, and our members, so just if you could give a background into how the sports market, say particularly over the last 50 years or so, has developed in Eastern Europe, and, and we'll come on to later what that means in terms of the role of lawyers within sport. Mm -hmm. um, well, that, that, that's an interesting evolution or revolution, I would rather say, um, because the way sport has been developed in all the former socialist countries in, in Eastern Central Europe was a very centralized approach managed by the government. Um, sport, and particularly elite sport, was a kind of a, a special area the government and, and the Communist Party was focusing on, um, because if you want, they took it as a, as a way of doing their propaganda, which meant that they heavily invested both in infrastructure and financing the activities and operations. Uh, it was very common, and I do remember it from my childhood, that um, a lot of people were trained and prepared to be really very good coaches in terms of identifying um, kids who are capable, uh, have the potential to develop. And, and these coaches rather spend um, time with these people, really develop their talent. Uh, just to give an example, um, one example from Bulgaria and one from Romania, uh, I recently had a, a, attended a conference in Bucharest which was attended um, by the, the head coach of their gymnastics team. And when he stood up 
in front of the audience, basically, literally, everybody stood up on foot and started applauding him. This guy is a national hero. Um, this is the same as with the, um, with the former head coach of the weightlifting team of Bulgaria, although he was a bit of a contradiction, uh, contradictory figure, sorry. Um, because on one hand, he developed a completely new concept of weightlifting as a sport, as, as, as a way of, of developing human's body, uh, which was a combination of uh, physical science, chemistry, uh, how to, uh, what and how people should eat. Um, and, and because of the result that initially it was Bulgaria only, but then some other countries where he, has, he was transforming his knowledge and experience uh, were um, argumentably alleged of abusing drugs to receive uh, some of their gold medals at the Olympics, at the uh, World Championships. Um, I mean, his glory was a bit... Uh, Tarnished in some way. Yeah, in, indeed. Um, but these two gentlemen are, are really an illustration of what the state did uh, 50 or 40 years ago. Uh, and unfortunately, some of the, the greatest results and achievement of, of the um, sport in, in the countries in, in the former communist bloc uh, are due to that policy. Now, back in 1990, when the changes um, went through all the former communist countries, um, there were so many problems that the government literally uh, took aside sport and didn't pay any attention at all. Um, and, and then came the interesting time for professional sport because the government basically disappeared, providing no support, no funding, and, and the gangsters actually took over the sport. Um, and, and this was the case in many countries in Central and Eastern Europe. I'm not talking only about Bulgaria, but we see that in Romania with the famous case of Stiawa yeah. and, and, um, and, it, and its president, who is still in jail. Um, for tax evasion, uh, the same thing happened in, in some other countries. Yeah, uh, you can say globally, there's been you know, there's organised crime, whether it's the mafia in yeah. in uh, Italy or America, and organised crime in the UK, boxing and you know, other sports. Well, I'm not sure whether this is the case in in the other countries, but particularly in Bulgaria, that was a strange coincidence. Uh, almost all the gangsters were formerly elite sportsmen. Yeah. Uh, they were either in, in, in wrestling yeah. or weightlifting or other other. Um, it makes sense if they're strong, strong individuals and they're doing something. Well, even like even they, they had a lot of uh, people from the rowing team of Bulgaria, which was doing pretty well. I mean, the yeah. la the latest golden medals we had were back in 1992 at the Olympics game in Barcelona, uh, and right after that, some of these people just were left on the street. So they had no other choice but really um, go to the on, on the other side of, of the battle. Um, and there were some sport administrators and sport directors who had to confess in the late 90s, at the beginning of this century, that in fact, in, in some of our countries, it was thanks to the gangsters which uh, helped Funded, the, the sport yeah. to, to survive. Because the, I mean, there, there were some very bad practices like corruption, like uh, match fixing. But on the other hand, they really were spending their money. And no one else was, right? So this is, yeah. this is you know, you can't, I guess you can't deny your history and yeah. also the, 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 
That's because there was a vacuum, as you said, from the, from yeah, the, from I, the Communist I, government. Right? I, think, so, I think that will be the right word. There, yeah. there was really a, a period of vacuum where there was someone had to fill this vacuum, and they were the only ones who really took the, the opportunity. Now, 15 to 20 years ago, the, the situation started changing uh, considerably, and finally the governments decided that it's high time to put some efforts on developing uh, corporate governance, whatever, whatever they understand as corporate governance, is sport. Uh, so the first changes in, in, in sport legislation started occurring, uh, and I think that currently, probably Poland would be the best example. Uh, we can show up and say, okay, this is what a reasonable sport actually looked like. Um, Bulgaria is making an effort trying to change the law now, and the current Minister of Sport is uh, now pushing the, the, this new draft law to go through the parliament. Um, as far as I know, Romania is working in this direction. Some and other how countries far, as well. How far are they going with this? Are they, are they trying to establish models of governance? Are they um, looking at uh, sort of vetting procedures for uh, and I'm trying to think of the word off the top of my head, but the, you know, yeah, vetting I guess would be the one way of, of uh, individuals who are in officials, in official positions. Well, in I, I, would say, I, I, would, I would say it's probably a blend of everything. Right. So we have real corporate governance measures like Preparing and, and applying strict provisions and regulations uh, as to how to license a sport organization, what is required. And it really makes a lot of sense uh, when you read the, the, the regulations. Uh, number two, Poland has made a step forward and basically officially proclaimed as part of its sport act that there is a professional sport. So therefore, there should be a separate body other than the sport federations governing the, the, uh, the competition, which are done professionally. So that, that's why Poland introduced the concept of sport leagues. We should run the professional tournaments and, and professional competitions. Uh, it would make a lot of sense from my perspective. Uh, then we have clear distinction on state financing. So when the government should give money to sport, uh, with defining clear focusing on grassroots and financing sports who are producing results. Similar to what we've got in the UK with the yeah. code for sport governance, you know, they're, yeah. if they're, 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 they, as they say, if they're investing public funds, they want to make ensure there's a return on investment. Yeah, uh, and and the other thing which I would say is just rather still an attempt rather than reality is um, turning again. I think the, the the good example that the UK can share with the other countries in the EU is how you actually use the money collected from from betting from uh, gambling yeah. uh, business uh, and, and reinvested in sport. Um, but Bulgaria is, in a, is a good example of trying to make a revolution in this direction because there is a state um, sport betting company, but there are also quite a lot of uh, private, including international ones, which are now licensed to operate in Bulgaria, either online or physically. Uh, and the, the, the current um, Minister of Sport is willing actually to spread the umbrella above all these organizations and ask them to contribute for the development of sport, making contribution out of their revenue. Uh, as you would imagine, uh, he's facing severe objections, <laughs> uh, surprisingly even by the Minister of Finance. Uh, so um, th this is currently on hold, but 
still uh, retaining the 70% contribution which the, the state um, uh, betting company is making to the budget of the Ministry of Sport is still quite substantial. And it's helping a lot uh, to finance um, leading sport organisation and, and sport teams in Bulgaria. And in, uh, when you were giving your presentation last time, you were talking about the, particularly a focus on football. Yep. And you were talking about the, some of the issues around infrastructure with stadium and also some of the challenges, uh, maybe you can you know, go into this, some of the challenges for potential investors within football, why there's a reluctance maybe to invest, some of the dynamics of you know, the pull away or the vacuum being created by the lack of uh, state support um, in relation to football. And, um, because I think, for me, that... I just think it's replicated around the world. I don't think it's a problem to these, these former socialist countries. Um, and also I think it, it highlighted to me a lack of vision more than anything about the opportunity there is if the people, they're looking obviously that people I use the Premier League as the example all the time, but they look at the, the Premier League as a prime example, the Liga for that matter, or, um, as that's what they're gunning for. And it may be what they're going for, but that might not be the reality with that at the moment. And it seems to me they're trying to, to leapfrog as opposed to develop with some, some level of sustainability. So maybe you can just describe what's going on, maybe give, give light to some good examples and then some of the problems that are in the, uh, yeah, they're facing that region. Well, across Central and Eastern Europe, we have, I would say, three major models of running football clubs. On one hand, you would have, and probably the best example currently on the map would be Poland, where uh, privately held clubs, which are run really professionally, all of them transform into joint stock companies, uh, which means they need to be in a position to have a sustainable business model uh, and a business plan, which they need to turn uh, ideas into actions. I think a great push for the development of the Polish football was the, um, hosting uh, Euro 2012, uh, where a, a lot of sport infrastructure, particularly focused on football, was developed, and, and the clubs were really given a, quite a big of a momentum. And, and this momentum seems to be taken over by uh, some good investors, um, with a number of the leading Polish clubs being taken over by uh, good practically orientated uh, private individuals uh, who put their money into the business and, and they, they really consider they, it as a business. Are they domestic investors or international investors or a mixture? Um, particularly in Poland, it, these are primarily either operating locally or Poles who came back from abroad, right. uh, which is the case of uh, Legia Warsaw, for example. Uh, people with international experience and international exposure, some of them former investment bankers. But again, I think the major turnaround was that they realized they need to run the football clubs as businesses. And, and that, that was the, the, the key starting point. Bulgaria and Romania are another interesting examples of this model because um, Bulgaria was probably the first country in Central and Eastern Europe which changed its legislation back in the 90s, mid-90s. And, and at that time, there was introduced a mandatory rule that all professional clubs need to get transformed into joint stock companies. The argument being, there must be clear transparency, who owns the clubs, where the money is coming from, 
uh, their financial statements to be audited because all joint stock companies are subject to mandatory statutory audit under Bulgarian domestic legislation. Unfortunately, in reality, uh, there are only two or three clubs which currently, you would say, are doing things as they should. It's a shame I was going to say, because in theory that sounds like a great yeah. idea. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, 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 the, and many of the, the, the ruling parties who are having their ministers of sport um, made, made a step backward, changing the law, and first of all, changing this rule, and then introducing the opportunity, uh, NGOs actually, to be the owners of the clubs, or simply said, uh, from legal perspective, the clubs to be, again, set up as NGOs, as, as um, civil partnerships. On one hand, the, the purpose of that was they, they could allow uh, a wider number of people get involved into the, the business of the club, Secondly, the reason was that in many cases the local authorities, the municipalities, start, started financing the operation of these clubs and they couldn't do it uh, ex lege if that was a, a joint stock company. They're simply not yeah. allowed. Um, but again, I, I would say that so far I haven't seen this model really working in reality. So I guess that only works though if you've got one a true backing and focus and um, and no doubt that's then down to the political whims of whoever's in power in the local um, authority at the time. Yeah, in, indeed. And, um, and, and that, that's one of the major um, objections which the, the sport business analysts have against this model is that it's, it's very easy to see a case where a sport-dedicated mayor steps down from power and his successor, who may not be at all interested in sport, simply says, I have other priorities. I will not give any more money for our local football club, and I don't care. It is in the Premier League. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking there was, thanks for that, and I was thinking there was um, an example you gave, and I can't remember, maybe it was in Bulgaria, where there was an investor who came into a, a club and literally turned it around completely. Uh, well, this, is, this, this is Bulgaria. This, it's, it's the current champion, Ludogorets. Uh, well, probably that, that's the... The good example we can be proud of. Um, There's a rich individual who is very well, successful in business, is that right? Isn't indeed, yeah. I mean, the current champion, actually, it's champion of Bulgaria for the last six years in a row, uh, and, and quite successfully performing in the Champions League and uh, Europa League. So every year they play in the group phase uh, in one of these two UEFA tournaments, uh, depending on how they perform in, in the qualification rounds. Um, but seven years ago, uh, a wealthy individual and his brother, uh, who have a very successful business in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, they decided to support a small club based in the southeastern part of the country. With this uh, small initial injection of, if I'm not mistaken, two or three hundred thousand, basically the club get promoted to the second division, and the next year they got promoted to uh, the first division. Then he understood that that's not a joke anymore, so he said, okay, if this is going to be a business, we need to do it as a business. They set up the club as a joint, or transform it rather, as a joint stock company with a single shareholder. Um, and he started actively financing, uh, following a clear vision and a business plan. So they, they signed a contract with the municipality. Uh, initially, they started with the long-term lease of, of the stadium. 
Uh, now the stadium has been concessioned to the club, uh, and they already have managed to completely refurbish a third stand, and, and the last one is coming next year. And, and I think if I'm right, they get quite a good attendance for this. And it's not a very huge, well, it's it's, not a very large stadium, but is that right? And but they it's, have a lot of it's, local wins. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's an eight thousand seater, uh, but what this club got famous for was that they they start selling the most expensive tickets. Uh, and they still managed to get uh, all crowded, all yeah. crowded home games. Um, last week we had Bosnia Herzegovina playing a friendly match uh, against Bulgaria on the stadium, and uh, Mr. Prosinecki, who's the uh, the manager of Bosnia Herzegovina right now, I mean, he gave an an interview where he was just he was really speechless, trying to explain how he satisfied was with the terms and conditions being offered, because Bosnia arrived three days earlier before the game, so they, and it was a very snowy week in Bulgaria, so irrespective of the snow, irrespective of the cold weather, they got perfect conditions for training, uh, recovery, uh, access to fitness, or other facilities, uh, because in addition to the, to the main pitch, to the stadium, um, th this club developed uh, really a top quality training base which is used both by the first squad and the academy they have nine training pitches one to each other uh, and I think they have one or two with uh, artificial turf as well so they can really train 365 and, days a year and the key takeaway though if you remember like you know given a now I'm giving a snapshot here of, of what you said in the presentation because I remember there were some questions that were being asked around this. But the key thing here was that you said they treat it as a business, they make those decisions sensibly, they invest and they get local support. And I remember that when you were talking about this, I remember thinking this is something I always talk about when I'm speaking to people in football is that sometimes you know, if you were to talk about some of the huge potential fan bases that are coming uh, say domestically to you know 5,000, 6,000 people every two weeks in, the, in, in England and Scotland um, and you were to say to an investor hey I've got these amount of people coming every two weeks in this vicinity and I've got a database of 20,000 people that would be a hugely attractive proposition yeah. obviously you've you got the relegation promotion issue but nevertheless if you engage with those people properly it seems like a sensible business person uh, could do a very good job um, so with, given that you've got one or two you know, examples and you've got things improving in places like Poland. What are, what are you seeing in terms of how many of these organisations uh, use lawyers? How many of them have got in-house lawyers? How many of them do you think could benefit from having that? I mean, talking in a broad sense of governance, regulation and on the commercial side. Well, based on my personal experience, what I've noticed is uh, Poland is, is again leading by example. Um, you can either have in-house lawyers in some of the clubs or you have external legal counsellors. Uh, some of these people got trained abroad. Um, they even attended some of the uh, UEFA courses, uh, or they have sport management degrees even. Um, so they do realise the importance of having good advisors. Um, the case with the Bulgarian champion is very interesting. Um, it's um, one of these examples where you may say that it's a bit contradictory because on one hand having all the power concentrated in one single owner uh, is a good thing because uh, 
you know that all the funding is secured, uh, the management is in place, there is a business plan, but on the other hand, keeping everything within one single business group sometimes may be risky. So th this club is using the army of the entire group's in-house lawyers team, uh, but nevertheless, um, whenever they feel uncomfortable, they, they're not afraid of con uh, confessing that they're not knowledgeable enough and they go on the market and buy expertise. So even, even they are ready to pay uh, big force consultancy fees, yeah. uh, they do that from time to time, uh, especially when they do a bit more complicated transaction or more sophisticated ones like back-to-back -back financing uh, with debt financing involved. So can you just explain for those people who aren't, and myself, what yeah. you mean by exactly what you mean by back-to-back -back financing? Um, well, there were some cases because... Uh, do you mean rolling, a rolling debt, or do you mean...? Yeah, well, basically they were collateralizing their receivables from the UEFA uh, funds, which they were entitled to receive, but because of the payment structure which UEFA applies, some of this money came, comes later. Ah. So in, in terms of, instead of going to borrow on, a, on the standard commercial terms, an overdraft. They basically go to the group's bankers, they collateralize their receivables, and they get at very good rates uh, some um, working capital financing. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. And so um, we were talking about this in terms of you know, the use. So, so you've got so organizations like that, and in Poland, where they've got some in houses, and these, really we're talking about is more the developed markets where there's more of a commercial offering for sport. Yeah. And in some of the other markets, are you seeing what? I would see in other markets and what we saw here where there may be one or two, maybe a small number of sports lawyers who are first into the market, but there's not a general awareness or understanding of what, one, what the role of a lawyer could be and how useful it could be, but also how to instruct or, or um, say, um, concerted efforts to uh, encourage lawyers to look into sport as a potential um, industry to, to grow. Well, I, I'm, a, I'm a strong believer that the the example which England and the UK overall are, are giving to the uh, to the sport world, uh, how important the, the sport lawyers are, and that they should be um, really given the credit for the efforts they make for the development of the professional sport and sport overall, uh, should be followed by the countries in Central and Eastern Europe. Th there are individuals who are really stars who are knowing what they're doing, uh, the fact that you have a number of members in the in the appeal body of UEFA coming from Central and Eastern Europe is a good indication these people really know their job. Uh, unfortunately, there is a kind of a monopoly of, of keeping their own territory, not allowing um, competition to step in, probably to some extent because of the smaller size of the market. Poland would be one of the good exceptions because it's it's really a big market. Uh, but but overall, uh, I think similar to the, the situation with the transfer agents, where these people are very co very much cooperative. Uh, they work with each other. Uh, they tolerate uh, the best practices of their competitors, and they try to follow them. So the lead by example principle works pretty well in, in this direction. I don't see why this should not be the case with the sport lawyers as well. Well, I think the, the issue becomes, well, there's a whole number of discussion about intermediaries and agents, but you know, taking that aside, there's, I think there's an interesting point that the, 
again, if you're the first into the market, maybe taking a risk, people trying to protect that risk. And I, I always say that you know, there's opportunity for people there, though, that if they um, are to you know, truly win in the market, mm-hmm. then they need to grow it and make it more sustainable. So yeah. it's all well and good you're advising one or two clients, but if the whole market bottoms out, or if there's mistrust in the market because of you know, um, you know, bad governance, bad commercial deals that are done that aren't properly reviewed, then it undermines the whole thing, and therefore you won't get government investment, you won't get a commercial investment. So it seems to me that there's, there's some work to be done there in, in sort of Central and Eastern Europe in terms of um, helping the, the current players who are in the market, but also then growing it out. I know there's some really top quality lawyers who actually are trying to build up national associations of sports lawyers Yep. And, and work with them to do that. So hopefully they, uh, yeah, I wish them all the success with that. Yeah, um, yeah. Probably the example I gave would be the football transfer agent is actually a, a two-side. Well, there are two sides of the coin because on one hand there is a good uh, example, but on the other hand that's um, an issue because that's really limiting your knowledge and experience only to one single sport. And I think what the good lawyers and why they're good is because they can really um, spread their knowledge and experience on any sport issue, irrespective of what the sport is. Yeah. And different sports have different issues. Yeah. So well, often you've got to take it. This, you, know, you need to understand the sporting context and the and the terms and the any market forces that, that may be involved. But really, you're looking at have to look at it objectively often and say what the outcomes that, that people are looking to to, to create. Yeah. Um, it's a bit like the governance perspective. You know, having transparency and accountability is just widely recognised anyway as a good idea. Right, it's critical. It, in the, in the, in the, at least we would agree on that. Um, I'm not sure if that's widely agreed across sport, but you know, internationally, you know, that's widely recognised as a best practice. And I think having good lawyers who have good legal backgrounds, obviously, but also then understand the context in which you're operating in, but can be objective about it is, is crucially important. I also think there's a real opportunity, and I hope that we get more engaged in this discussion. Uh, I know that these discussions do take place globally, but I hope as, as the increasing internationalization of sport, um, you've got to look at, as you said, the Champions League as an example, that there is more cross-dialogue between the different countries, because I still think, particularly given the background that you described earlier, I think there's an opportunity as well for us to, see people in, say, the more developed sports markets, to reflect and actually uh, you know, have some learning uh, two-way learning, so us educating in terms of what we've done, but also then reflecting on some of the market forces and the economic and social environments in which these um, sports teams or governing bodies or lawyers, for that matter, are operating within. Oh, I fully agree with you, Sean, yeah, indeed. Oh, that's exactly what I wanted you to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I really believe it. <laughs> um, thank you so much for taking the time out. I really thank appreciate it. Thank you for this opportunity. Um, I think that, as I said, like, really... Again, thanks for the presentation last year. It really sparked my conscience in terms of um, thinking about some other market forces because you know, normally I describe you know, the development of sport through people who have done a very good job over the years, particularly like Jack Anderson and Mark James talking about the Industrial Revolution or said all the elite who were participating on sports like polo and horse racing and athletics and stuff. And then you know, the Olympic movement and then obviously the American commercial model and then you give them this sort of fourth strand which is this government-funded socialist-type background, which is then the legacy of which has called that vacuum that caused the criminal criminal organisation. I think it's fascinating. It also helps us get a better understanding of global sport, global sports governance, because obviously all of these countries, all of these organisations have representatives that then go and sit at 
uh, an international federation yep. or input into government and then set policy. So it's, I think it's very relevant and very important to, to understand this. So thank you for sharing that. I said it was really insightful at the time. I've, and I still learn a lot from this podcast, so I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you as well.